hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Nina Porzuki grew up in Southern California. She studied Spanish at high school, figured it would be a useful language to learn in a part of the U.S. where there are so many Spanish speakers. In her 20s, she moved away from California, but she still goes back regularly to see family and friends. And over the years, she's become more aware of Mexicans and Central Americans in California who don't speak Spanish, at least not as their first language. Like the people Nina went to see a few years ago at a radio station 50 miles up the coast from L.A. I was listening to this NPR thing where it's like um, Sounds of Los Angeles, and I was like, hey, we should do a Sounds of, of Oxnard. This is Carlos Jimenez. He helped launch a brand new community radio station in Oxnard, California, Radio Indígena. All of the DJs are volunteers, and many of them speak indigenous Mexican languages. One DJ, Jesus Noyola, has a show called El Profe y la Poesía, The Professor and the Poetry. Jesus ended up recording the dishwashing machines at his job. He said he wanted to record, he ran to his car, got, got the recorder, and turned it on and was recording the sound that I think is the experience of a lot of immigrants, a lot of people who work multiple jobs. Behind the distracting sounds of the kitchen, he says, is a lot of stress. And so that's what, what Oxnard sounds became for us. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. I'm Patrick Cox. And in this episode, the story about how these indigenous Mexican languages, Mixtec, Triqui, Zapotec, and others, how these languages have become common in parts of California, and how that has given rise to a small industry of interpreters who help the people who speak these languages live their lives. I recently visited Natividad Hospital in Salinas, California, on the central coast. Folks from Salinas like to remind you that their valley is, quote, the salad bowl of the world. Not that you can forget. Everywhere you look, everywhere. There's fields growing lettuce, strawberries, broccoli, fields and fields and fields. Even Natividad, the hospital, is surrounded by fields. Where are we going, Isra? We're going to be going to uh, MIU, Maternal Infant Unit. Okay. Um, so are you going to be interpreting? Yeah, probably me or Sergio. Oh, Sergio. Yeah. Israel Jesus is 20 years old. He's a medical interpreter at Natividad. His co-workers, the other interpreters, they call Israel El Bebe. And despite his very adult crisp blue blazer and his dress shoes, they're very nice, he does have this kind of baby face, the sweet, toothy grin. He has dimples. Fittingly, today, El Bebe is interpreting for two new parents and their baby daughter. Israel is trilingual. He speaks English, Spanish, and Triki. That's what you were hearing right there. 
It's a native Mexican language spoken in parts of the rural mountainous state of Oaxaca. Triqui is a tonal language, a pre-Columbian language. It's about as related to Spanish as, I don't know, say English is to Mandarin. And it's one of a number of indigenous Mexican languages that are being spoken here in California. Israel is soft-spoken. He mumbles a bit. It's a trait I've been told that many Triki people share. Several years ago, you'd never have found a Triki interpreter like Israel roaming the hospital's corridors. In fact, you would have been lucky to find a certified Spanish language interpreter at Natividad. This was a problem, a problem that became clear to Linda Ford when she became the CEO of the hospital's foundation nearly a decade ago. I first went into the emergency department and asked one of the doctors, is there anything you need here in this emergency department? And he was so frustrated and just said, oh my goodness, I can't talk to my patients. I cannot talk to my patients. Linda found that it wasn't just communicating Spanish that was an issue. Four of the most commonly spoken languages of patients coming to the hospital were native Mexican languages. And within those four native Mexican languages, there were dozens of variants. And it was just amazing because I thought, well, I'll just hire indigenous interpreters, so let me find an agency that can provide interpreters. And I Googled indigenous languages to try to find interpreters, and nothing came up on the Google. Maybe there were interpreters in uh, Australia, but nothing else. So what Linda thought would be just a minor problem to fix turned into something much, much bigger. Two of the patients that Natividad doctors couldn't talk to were Israel's parents. In 2010, long before he was an interpreter, his mom brought his baby sister to the hospital. She was sick with a fever. His mom, who only speaks Triki and a little bit of Spanish, went to the emergency room, unable to communicate just how sick her daughter was. They were in the hospital, like, like around eight hours waiting, and the baby was had a fever and, and, and really high fever, and, and that and then the, at that time the doctors didn't know how to what to do, and then they put a tube on it and, and cables, and one of the tubes that they put it in the mouth crossed in her um in her heart. So. The cable crossed her heart, and his little sister died. And all of this occurred while Israel's mom had little grasp of what was going on. So that's why, uh, for my little sister, that's why I became an interpreter. For his sister, he says. That is why he became an interpreter. Of course, it would be years before Linda Ford would meet Israel. And in those initial years, when she was trying to figure out how do I deal with this problem? How do I bridge the gap between doctors and their patients? Her search led her to Victor Sosa. I remember the, the first month I was here, I did 300 interpretations just myself, and that was it. Well, you know, that, that was the all, that was a whole department. You're like running around the hospital. Yeah. Yes. Victor is a certified Spanish language medical and court interpreter. And when he came to Natividad six years ago, he began developing a program to train Spanish-speaking staff members around the hospital to aid in interpretation. And in setting up the Spanish interpreting program, he discovered something incredible. There were already indigenous language interpreters at the hospital. Just no one saw them that way. 
And then Angelica came along. She had been here for years working in the fields, and she had helped a lot of individuals. Uh, she's a very strong woman. You'll meet her. Strong is an understatement for Angelica Isidro. For 20 years, Angelica, who speaks Spanish and another Mexican language called Mixteco, she's been making the rounds in the hospital and the courts and the jails all over Salinas Valley, informally interpreting for anyone in her community that needed help. She would provide interpretation uh, on the spot, uh, come in from the fields, uh, sometimes out in the fields, you know, take some calls. I'd interpret where I worked in the fields, she tells me. I'd put the telephone beneath the bandana that was covering my face, and I'd keep working like it was nothing. I'd never sit, walking, interpreting while I was doing everything, like washing the lettuce, cutting the lettuce, or the broccoli, or whatever it was, all the while interpreting and working in the field. Victor and Linda realized they had this great untapped resource right there in the hospital. All of these bilingual and trilingual folks like Angelica already informally interpreting for their relatives and their friends. What if they could hire and train them? But they needed the money to do that. And the obvious place to go? To the fields. huge in Toronto. You go to any restaurant in Toronto and you ask them, who's Rapini or Broccoli Rob you got? If you hate broccoli, you have John DiRigo's family to blame. So I was up there on a tour and I just, you know, they knew who I was. You go, are you kidding? There's only one Broccoli Rob. And that's Andy Boy. That's what the chef told me. John's father is Andy Boy. And his grandfather, an Italian immigrant, is often credited with introducing broccoli to the United States in the 1920s. He missed those little green trees from back home, and he asked his relatives back in southern Italy to send him some seeds. And so they did. And now John runs the family farm. Yeah, it looks like a refrigerator. Yeah, it's a giant refrigerator. We try to keep this around 33 degrees. And by farm, that is putting it mildly. And then we keep track of everything all by computers. See that little barcode over there? It is a multi-million dollar business with thousands of acres across the Salinas Valley. You know, we do head lettuce, cauliflower, all the broccolis, all the other stuff, but just romaine hearts, we'll cut a million heads a day, every day, every single day, a million heads. My days of growing up in the fields, speaking strictly Spanish, that's all there was, that I knew about anyway, uh, to today, incredible difference in different um, types of people coming across. These um, indigenous Indian tribes from deep in Mexico, South America, uh, I don't believe those existed back decades ago. They in the fields, they weren't in yeah. your fields working with you. To me it was just your regular Mexican agriculture, bracero worker, and now you have the Oaxacans and, and all these indigenous tribes, these languages that nobody knows how to speak because you've heard they're pre-Columbian, three to 4,000 years old. There's no Latin root. They're working in the strawberry industry a lot. You know, they tend to be shorter of stature, so that would make it easier 
to harvest a crop that grows low to the ground. Not only has it gotten more difficult to communicate with farm workers, according to Diego, since 9-11, tougher immigration policy has caused a slowdown of migrant labor coming from south of the border. And his workforce, he says, has been shrinking over the last decade. This is every company all over the United States. You go to Georgia, the Vidalia Onions, up in the apple country, up in Washington. Everybody's leaving perfectly good produce either in the trees or on the ground, and it's going to waste because we can't harvest it. We do not have the labor. And so I'm short 30 to 40 percent every day. I'm short hundreds of people every single day. I have machines. Half of them are empty. I can't get the workers. These two pressures, the increased shortage of farm labor and the increasing inability to communicate with the farm workers, prompted Dirigo to do something about it and to reach out to the big farm families in the valley to address these problems. Together, they formed the Agriculture Leadership Council. It's a mouthful. All these other companies are finally realizing that, man, a huge portion of my workforce does speak these languages, and I better figure out how to communicate with them. They've all bought in to taking care of the workers they do have because we're not getting any more. So how can I endear my workers to me? I don't want them to go work for that guy over there and my competitor over there because now we're in a bidding war on wages, working conditions, benefits, because we're all fighting for the same worker. Okay, so let's not beat about the bush. These farm workers are not rolling in dough over this fight that Dirigo is talking about to keep them. Wages are modest at best. But farmers from around the valley gave Linda and the Natividad Foundation the seed money to start an indigenous interpreting program at the hospital. These folks, they want the same health care I want for my family. Let's help them. Let's take care of our workers and their families so they want to stay here, work for us, and know that we care about them. But how did these groups of native Mexicans, many from deep in the south of Mexico, many of whom don't even speak Spanish, how did they come to be working in the fields in California and be the patients seeking care at places like Natividad Hospital? This issue turned out to be a defining moment for our nation. This familiar voice is President Clinton, at the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1993. In a few moments, I will sign the North American Free Trade Act into law. NAFTA will tear down trade barriers between our three nations. It will create the world's largest trade zone and create 200,000 jobs in this country by 1995 alone. NAFTA went into effect in January of 1994. And for the last two decades, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico have been trading freely without tariffs. But NAFTA continues to be the subject of scrutiny. So these years later, what has NAFTA brought? A trade agreement that is now two decades old and still the subject of debate. But the impact on agriculture has been wide-ranging and not always so positive, especially for small-scale farmers. Under NAFTA, Mexico could no longer tax things like U.S. corn, and the U.S. couldn't tax Mexican corn, by definition, free trade. Except the agreement didn't make it illegal to subsidize goods. So corn is one product that the U.S. has heavily subsidized in the years following the trade agreement, 
And while the U.S. can afford to heavily subsidize corn, Mexico cannot. And this has affected the native populations of Mexico enormously, says Seth Holmes. He's the author of the book Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies. The native people I know from southern Mexico have felt like since the time the North American Free Trade Agreement was signed, it's been less and less possible for them as corn growers that it's not possible for them to make a living anymore working on their own farms. So from the mid-1990s, a huge number of farmers moved north looking for work. Seth, who in addition to being an author is also a doctor and an anthropologist, he lived and worked alongside Triqui farm workers in Oaxaca, documenting their experiences for almost two years. And he saw firsthand how heavily subsidized American corn squeezed Mexican farmers out of business, especially indigenous farmers. Every family I know in the villages where I was had at least one person in the U.S. at at any given time. Every family, in order for that family to survive, someone needed to be far away from the family working and sending money back. So the question was never, is someone going to go? The question was always, who's going to go and when? This episode of Subtitle is about immigrants in the United States, which seems like a good opportunity to recommend a podcast that's all about immigrants and the people around them. That podcast is called Immigrantly. Host Sadia Khan is an immigrant herself, so her conversations with Immigrantly guests are rooted in her experience. The conversations are complex, they're challenging, and they're often messy, but they're never boring. And the guests? Well, you can hear Sadia speak with Grammy-winning singer Aruj Aftab and with author of the acclaimed book The Kite Runner, Khalid Husseini. And there are comedians Hari Kondabolu and Apana Nanchila. You can find all of these people talking about their immigrant experiences and the lives of the people around them. Immigrantly. Listen and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. Israel, the treaty interpreter, was 11 years old when he came to the U.S. He crossed the border with his sister. His mom and dad had already been in the U.S. for about two years, working to make enough money to pay for the coyotes to bring the kids across. In Israel, when he came to the U.S., he struggled. In school, with limited Spanish and no English, the first years, he says, were like a blur. And it was really hard for me uh, to understand the teacher, to, to communicate with the kids sometimes. And speaking tricky felt like a burden, a mark against him even in school. So when I was in high school, one of the kids came by to me and they said, Israel, why are you in school? Don't come to school no more, man. You'll be working as your parents, they work in the field. I think I'm smarter than you, I told them that. And then he said, I don't think so. You're going to be working in the field as your parents. Suddenly when he said that to me, I got mad. Then I feel myself down and I said, why I'm from Oaxaca, you know? Why? Why I have to be from there? Why am I from Oaxaca? Why do I have to be from there? During the summers, Israel did work in the fields. And that high school kid's words continued to haunt him. If 
five years ago with money from farmers from the valley, Linda and Victor set up a paid internship program at the hospital to recruit and train Indigenous interpreters, Indigenous Interpreters Plus. When they started hiring and training interns, many folks like Angelica and Israel who worked in the fields, they realized that it wasn't merely going to be about teaching interpreting protocols. Many of these languages didn't have words for diseases or medical procedures or equipment. One of our doctors conversing with a Zapotec patient was trying to figure out how they would describe tuberculosis. And the Zapotec individual said that it was something similar to like the devil is strangling my neck. You know, is it okay for the interpreter to describe it as you have the devil is strangling your neck disease? And while translating medical terminology was one challenge, translating a different cultural view of medicine proved to be another almost bigger challenge. One of our interpreters was a patient here at one time, and the physicians and the lab techs kept taking her blood. And I'd go say, how are you feeling today? And she would say, how could I be feeling better? They're taking all my blood, so I'm feeling worse and worse and worse. She actually had sepsis, said Linda but she couldn't understand where her blood was going. I mean, it scared her. It's like, I'm getting weaker and weaker, and where is this blood going? So having no concept about blood going to a lab and why, why it goes to the lab, what does that indicate, what is pathology, that whole piece of context is missing. And it dawned on Linda. It wasn't enough just to train interpreters. She had to train doctors and nurses and the entire medical staff. They, too, have to be trained to understand what the context is not. When they say, I'm going to the lab, well, what's the lab? They have no idea what a lab is. It's going to take time to teach the staff and the doctors and change medical culture, says Sebastian Marchewski. He's a third-year resident at Natividad. There's a culture here of questioning whether we need interpreters or not, in some cases. Within physicians? Within physicians and nursing staff. Really? So you'll get into conversations with people like, we don't need our interpreter Exactly, here. exactly. We don't need it now. You know, a woman may come in and speak a little bit of Spanish, or at least be able to answer some simple questions. And then they think, oh, we don't need an interpreter. We have the information we need. But I've noticed that when we do get an interpreter, even, even if they speak a little Spanish, it's not their primary language in a lot of cases. And so when we do get an interpreter, as soon as they enter the room, sometimes I see them just relax. It's almost as if there's an ally in the room, somebody that's familiar who will understand them on many levels, not just their language. And so over time, I've developed a lower threshold to try and get an interpreter and incorporate them sometimes more than just the language. It's getting them to elicit what their understanding is of a certain condition or a process or a procedure. Four years ago, Israel was at the mall, trying on shoes, and this woman started talking to him. Uh, she said, hey, uh, good morning. And then she said, do you speak English? And I thought, yeah, I do speak English. Oh, awesome. Do you speak another language? Uh, yes, I do. It's, uh, which one is it? It's tricky. That woman was Victor Sosa's wife. She got Israel's number, and Victor called him to recruit him. So never, never in my, in my, in my life I thought that Tricky was going to be one of the important language. This from the kid who questioned why he had to be from Oaxaca. He did the internship program. It wasn't easy. There were a lot of medical words he didn't know in Tricky, like C-section. 
So he had to ask the only person who might know them, his mom. And I asked her, Mom, how do you say this word? How do you say cessation in Triki? And then she explained it to me, and, and she's like my teacher in Triki language, yes. Then a few months ago, Israel ran into that high school bully. Remember the one who told him that he would be working in the fields with his parents? Well, he ran into the kid in the hospital waiting room. He saw me with a suit and shoes. I said, Israel. And then that's why he got surprised. That must have felt good. Yeah, that was feel good. I was like, oh. I never thought that I wasn't working here in Natividad Hospital. He never thought that he would work at Natividad Hospital. And he never thought that Triki would be the reason why. He says that many people he knows now, people who speak Spanish and English, they often ask him, how do you get a job at the hospital? What do you need? You just need to speak very well Spanish and English and uh, indigenous language. They will say, oh my God, I wish I could be from Oaxaca. I was like, oh my God, I'm from Oaxaca. <laughs> yeah, I'm from Oaxaca. He says that with his big toothy grin. I'm from Oaxaca. I'm really proud that I'm from Oaxaca now, that my language is, is important here in Natural Hospital. Israel recently started community college. He wants to be a civil engineer. And Indigenous Interpreting Plus now offers interpreting services for organizations all over the United States. Victor is now working with several folks to create an official Indigenous interpreting curriculum that they hope to publish early next year and train more interpreters, just like Israel. Okay, for the final segment today, please excuse my very, very bad voice. I tracked this a week later and a cold later. So, pardon the frog. 250 miles south of Salinas is Oxnard. It's another agricultural hub of California. Driving down the 101 past fields of strawberries and kale and now pumpkins this time of year, if you want to hear what Oxnard sounds like, just tune the dial to 94.1. Muy buenas tardes, amigos. Estás escuchando el Oxnard Radio Indígena. Ande Banscondo, um, I think the station came into being just out of a, a blatant need. Again, this is Carlos Jimenez, who helped start Radio Indígena. It's just a small station, really more like a windowless room slash studio in the offices of the Misteco Indígena Community Organizing Project. You had a bunch of people in the indigenous community who have absolutely zero sources of information in their language at, from any of the local radio stations here. And on top of all of that, Oxnard has hundreds of undiscovered bands, says Carlos. When you drive around Oxnard Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's a lot of these like bands going from venue to venue, which are restaurants mostly, and that's where a lot of the bands do play. But outside of that, this type of this community plays at like quinceañeras, baptisms, backyard parties. That's their sort of venue, and so within the community, people know about them. 
But outside of that, there's not a mediated network for them outside of what, what maybe their Facebook or their YouTube channel. Until Radio Indígena started broadcasting them over the internet about a year and a half ago. DJs started playing some of these local groups, bands like this one that you're hearing now. They're called Grupo Sin Control. They play a type of music from Oaxaca called Chilenas. From what I've heard from the community, it has its origins in Chile. This music made its way north, north to the rural parts of, of Oaxaca. What happened was it was brought over to Mexico by Chilean sailors in the 19th century who brought the music and the stance style with them. These are long songs. These are eight to 12, maybe more length songs. And you're not just standing listening to these songs, you're dancing all eight, 12 minutes. So you're out there doing something with your body. And from my experience, it's this really particular dance where it's sort of a two-step and you just jam into the beat and then you don't touch, you, you rarely touch. And from what I've noticed, you're just sort of watching everybody else. You don't even look at your partner in the face? You, you very rarely are looking at your partner. You're, you're, you're dancing with somebody, but you're not looking at each other. You're sort of perusing everybody else. And for me, I'm trying to see how everybody else is dancing so that I blend in and I don't stand out. Um, but beyond that, I mean, the music, when this song goes on, let's say they're playing rancheras and norteñas or whatever, you have five, ten people. But the moment that they play a chilena, Everybody is on the dance floor. Everybody. So basically, it kind of sounds like Oaxacan jam band music. You know, with the dance that goes along with it. And since getting airtime, these small unknown bands like Grupo Sin Control have blown up. So much so that a local Spanish radio station recently started featuring a weekly show of Chilenas music. It's wonderful. You guys have to have a record label then. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> the next step. The next step. <laughs> radio Indigena doesn't just play music. Programming ranges all over the place, from shows like Jesus Noyolo's show about poetry, to a program on relationships and women's health, to a man who talks about the traditions from his village back in Oaxaca, or this show by this DJ I met named Jorge. Yeah. Jorge. Jorge? Jorge's show is called La Lucha Social, The Social Fight, where Jorge discusses workers' rights. I want to reach the people, he says. And Radio Indigena is reaching people since the station began broadcasting in languages like Mixteco and Zapoteco, Triqui, these indigenous Mexican languages. The station DJs have heard from listeners tuning in all over California. If you can just imagine you yourself as a person who's left their home to go to another country, no signs, no radio, no TV, no nothing is in your language. And then all of a sudden there's this group of people who are broadcasting in your language that your mom spoke, that your brother spoke, that your family spoke, and you get to hear it, it's, it's, you, there's no words. And I think what the calls that we got were that emotion. Thank you. Thank you for doing this.
And that's all for this week. Thanks to everyone who shared their stories and their languages with me in Oxnard and in Salinas. And I would say thank you in Mixteco, but I don't want to insult the Mixteco speakers with my very sad attempt. It is very hard language. Hit us up on Twitter at Lingopod. I'm at Porzuki. That's P-O-R-Z-U-C-K-I. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.